Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Journalist and author Catherine Stewart has written for many publications, including The New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, and The Advocate, to name just a few. Her latest book, The Good News Club, investigates public education and religious fundamentalism in America. But it was her recent piece for The Nation magazine that caught my attention. It's titled, Inequality Has Gotten So Bad That We're Offshoring Our Grandparents. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the issues raised in that article, and we'll also hear about Catherine's experience of caring for her mother prior to her recent passing. Catherine Stewart, I am delighted to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Let's put this in context. I want to talk a little bit about where you grew up and what your family life was like. I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. I have two siblings. I'm the middle of three. I have an older sister and a younger brother. My home life was very happy. Uh, my father, unfortunately, passed 20 years ago. He was 65 years old, and oh he gosh. had a, a brain tumor. And we made the decision as a family to keep him at home. At, at a certain point, it became clear that he was going to die, and we uh, made a decision to sort of care for him here. And that was a very powerful experience, and I have to say the experience of caring for him to the end felt like a great honor. Um, and I, you know, I left home and lived in New York City and became a journalist. I lived for a while in Santa Barbara. But when my mother, when it became clear that she was unable to care for herself any longer, this was about four and a half years ago, my husband and I sort of made the decision to move back to Boston from New York to care for her and help keep her at home. So we, uh, I was her caregiver for four years, her primary caregiver, um, until she died um, about last April. Mm. Um, April of this that, year? April of this year. Oh, wow, yeah, that's so very not recent. So long ago. Wow, yeah. yeah, very recently. Mm. And she died as she wanted to at home, surrounded by people who loved her. She was happy to the very end. <laughs> Every day I would say, Mom, are you happy? And she would say, either I'm happy or I'm content. <laughs> <laughs> so well, how so, old was she when she died? She was 86 years old. And, and did she um, have an illness? She had lymphoma. And at a certain point, she made a decision that she didn't want uh, any treatment. Mm-hmm. It was really her time. So mm-hmm. she was, you know, had uh, profound disabilities at this point, And by the end, she really wasn't able to... I mean, she couldn't do anything without assistance. She was she couldn't even take a fork to her mouth. I think she just didn't want any invas- invasive treatments, and uh, her disease was very advanced at that point. So before you moved back to Boston, did she have care in the home? No, she okay. was living on her own in the house that I grew up in, which mm-hmm. is, which she loved so very much. It was, we like to joke in our family that you know my mom liked us okay, but her real passion was for her house. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was so comfortable here, and she had decades of of happy memories. 
and she was living on her own, and I would come and visit her and try and clean, you know, I think a lot of men and women of that generation had gone through the Depression, and they were savers. They saved everything Uh from paper bands to the little twisties Uh on the (laughs) bread and everything. So I'd come home, and I'd try to clean, and I'd try and sort of see if I could clean up, you know, clean the house and help her. And it got to a point where I was spending so much time going back and forth that I just frankly wasn't spending enough time with my own kids and it was very difficult and at one point I came back with my husband and kids and we took her out to dinner and she couldn't get out of the car onto the sidewalk like she literally couldn't get out of the car and um, you know even with assistance it was really difficult and I realized at that moment she is really not okay she cannot live on her own anymore Mm -hmm. she just can't Mm -hmm. and you know, we tried to introduce the idea that perhaps an assisted living situation would be a better arrangement for you. And she and I would go and tour these places. And she was so sweet about it. She she said to me, the problem is, it would be like high school all over again. <laughs> Who would I eat lunch with? And if, <laughs> if someone asks you, and if you don't like them, you still have to eat lunch with them. Otherwise, you'll get a bad reputation, and no one will eat lunch with you. Oh and my gosh! Wow. <laughs> she just didn't want to do that for a variety of reasons. Yeah, which yeah. I, you know, appreciated. So um, she was on her own for quite a while too. If your dad, she died. was on her own yeah. until she was, I think, eighty-two, eighty-one yeah. or eighty-one or eighty-two years old. Uh huh. So that's and, so she um, was very self-sufficient, it sounds like. She was very self-sufficient. She uh-huh. was a very accomplished woman. She was a psychotherapist. She had a lot of professional engagement. Mm-hmm. She treated patients until, I believe, she retired just a few years before we moved in. So mm-hmm. she well into her 70s. She, she had patients. And that was a big decision for you to move back. It was certain. huge. Yeah. But it wasn't even, I think like many caregivers, we kind of don't know what we're getting into when we start. Mm-hmm. Because when we moved back home, she could still walk. She could still prepare herself light meals, although she wasn't preparing really good meals at that point, And that was one of the reasons we felt we needed to go back to help her feed herself. And But a few months after we moved back, she fell and broke her pelvis. And her mobility from that point was severely impaired. So how did so you- it's really great that we were there. I'll say. And so you moved back into your childhood home with your husband. And your two kids, how old were your kids when you moved back in with your mom? Oh, gosh. My daughter was entering the fifth grade, and mm-hmm. my son was entering, I think it was kindergarten. It was hard for them, but, you know, they made it work. We all made it work. And and the siblings, where do they live? My siblings live in Washington, D.C. and Texas. So they weren't exactly close by either. They weren't close by, yeah. and my husband and I are both writers, so we sort of took the line that our careers were more flexible, mm-hmm. you know, as long as I could take meetings in New York or mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. to my writer's groups or maintain my contacts that way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I had just had a book, that, a book of mine had just come out, I published my last book in 2012, and I was traveling around a lot, speaking to different groups around the country. And I was spending like a good portion of my time on the road. And Mm -hmm. my thought was, well, it doesn't really matter where I'm based because I'm traveling so much. And my husband is, by the way, a saint. Uh Um, I was just going to say that takes some juggling. And he, you know, you make choices and you but you have to have an accommodating spouse or partner. And so he responded well, is the bottom line. He was amazing. I Uh could not have done this without him. He Uh was incredible whenever I was gone. He would, 
I mean, obviously cook for my mom and make sure she was uh, in good shape, help her get around, uh, assist her, you know, with anything she needed. I mean, he was just amazing. Did you have outside help coming in in addition to living there? For the first couple of years, my mom did not want to admit that she needed the help because she had always been so self-sufficient. And I think that this is very common among people who are aging. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. You, you want to sort of help this person preserve their sense of self and their sense of dignity. So I did have someone come in and assist and told her, well, the person is helping me. She's there to help me. And then at a certain point, I think about two years in, the, it was so obvious that the help was really for her. I said, look, mom, Mm-hmm. The help is for you. <laughs> and uh, so we're just going to have to make that work. But, you know, you understand my mom needed, for much of this time, she needed 24-7 care yeah. because she was yeah. a very high fall risk and mm-hmm. she was um, not able to walk mm-hmm. unassisted. And then for much of it, she was also in a wheelchair. So a lot of the elder care that's required is very personal care. And, you know, my mom needed someone to sit with her overnight to assist her when she needed help in the middle of the night, which she needed Mm -hmm. usually two or three times in the middle of the night, and to make sure she didn't roll out of bed, et cetera. So just eight hours at night, seven nights a week, that's 56 hours a week. I mean, you know, when people say full-time care, some elderly people require 24-7 care, Mm -hmm. and that's 168 hours a week. So if I'm hiring somebody to come in 56 of those hours so I can get a good night's rest, it really presents a challenge the other 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So what do you think was the hardest part for you or what were the biggest challenges for you personally? The biggest challenges, to be honest, was the managing that 24-hour cycle. And um, I was also a mom. I had two little kids right. and they need a lot. Yeah. They need a lot of assistance and care and attention. So I would kind of just make it work. <laughs> I just, I would get up and, you know, attend to my mother first thing in the morning after the caregiver left Mm -hmm. and get her fed, get her clean and get her what she needed. Then I had these sort of barriers I'd put in her bed so she wouldn't roll over. And then I'd get up and then I'd do the kids and get their breakfast, obviously with assistance from my husband, Mm -hmm. get them ready for school. And then after they left, I would check in on mom, bring her an extra cup of tea. Then I would go do some work. And then, like, periodically throughout the day, I'd go in to sort of, it was like a dance, you know, it was like just really busy. And Mm -hmm. it was also full of joy. I mean, there was real joy in the care, there was real joy in doing things for my mom that I knew she had done for me for so many years. So it was a challenge, but it was also its own reward. And frankly, now that she's gone, I miss the care. I go into the room that was her room and... You know, I I want to bring her a cup of tea and tuck her <laughs> yeah. in and, yeah. and and read her her favorite poems. We did a lot of, you know, reading in bed. Uh-huh. She loved poetry. You know, we had some wonderful, wonderful times. I feel really lucky to have done it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a really nice mom, too. She was very, very sweet, my mom. You know, it, very it, sweet. The way that caregivers remember their caring experience, it really is so based on what sort of relationship you had with the parent. And whether they're a nice person, whether they've got a disease that's affecting their cognitive functioning and whether they're lashing out, there are so many factors, so many variables. And I think it's very rare when you really do like your parent and you have fond memories. You don't sugarcoat it, but you remember some great things too. You, you know? think that that's, that's, I think that's that unusual. rare to you? I, yeah, 
I do. I think what, it's unusual. What do you typically hear? I read a lot of my mom wandered. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't afford to care for her, but I'm the only one in the family. I don't, you know, it's nightmare scenarios. There's such a range of, of experiences that people have. I think the thing is, is that it's after the parent is gone, usually, that the person says, yeah, that was a really important, special time in my life. But when they're in the middle of it, they can't see that. They're it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, I feel like I got to a point where I had like a really terrific A-team of people who assisted. Mm -hmm. But people have lives. They get sick. Their kids get sick. They have to cancel. And if a caregiver would cancel on me, you know, say 9 o'clock, at night, and who was supposed to come in at 10, I would think, okay, well, I'm not going to get any sleep tonight. Mm -hmm. And I've got a deadline tomorrow. And my, my kid needs extra help with her history project. So how am I going to get through wow. that? That was really hard. Mm. That just reflects the reality of the job. It is a job. Caring for elders is a job. And um, unfortunately, what I've observed is that a lot of the frustration is a result of people not viewing it as real legitimate labor. Mm -hmm. And when we call in people to do assistance, we treat it like a job and we pay them, hopefully, a fair wage for their work. But I think a lot of times within families, because the labor falls disproportionately on one child or one sibling, and the others often don't like to acknowledge that it's labor because they might then have to acknowledge the fact that, that they're requiring their other sibling to do it. It's just It just becomes much more or they don't take it seriously. They don't view it as labor because they're not doing yeah. it and they don't know how laborious it is. Um, yeah. Did you go through an agency when you hired outside people? Or you know, I, I tried different agencies and, mm -hmm. you know, nothing against agencies. I just didn't happen to have great experiences. But I did find some people that we paid privately and I felt like we can actually give them, the, the person takes home more money if we go through private pay and just give them the money that we would have given to an agency. Mm -hmm. And then we felt like if we do that, then they're loyal to us rather than to the agency and then they'll be loyal to my mother. And mm -hmm. we found people that really did have a connection, a personal connection with her. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I mean, we had such wonderful, such wonderful women who joined my mother for her birthday celebrations and uh, knew exactly what she liked to eat and would talk with her and joke with her and figure out what favorite shows she wanted to watch because the TV at the end became very important. Mm -hmm. um, my yeah. mother had never, been a, never watched TV, but at a certain point that was pretty much all she could do when I wasn't with her, you know, yeah. or when she wasn't being actively engaged by her friends or, mm -hmm. you know, it was mm -hmm. a big part, part of her life. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, we just had the most wonderful people. And I felt like it worked. That's what worked best for our family. Uh -huh. But that also worked for our family because if somebody needed to cancel, I was okay with that because I was in the house or my husband was in the house. Mm -hmm. You know, I could do the midnight change and then the 3 a.m. change. It was hard, but I could do it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? If my mom had been living by herself, that would not have worked because you need someone to kind of, the agency will, if person A can't do it, they have person B who can fill in. Right. Certain ease of scheduling. Uh-huh. What were you not prepared for? And, oh and what, what do you wish you'd had <laughs> help with? <laughs> None of it. <laughs> I really wasn't prepared for any of it. <laughs> that must have been really strange for you to go back to your childhood home. Yeah, uh, how I just was thought that it would be you? no big deal. Yeah. I just thought, okay, well, I'll just clean out the house and, you know, make everything great. And, and well, I just didn't even think long term. I just figured, oh, we'll do it for a year. 
Uh-huh. How little we know. We really, How little we know. Yeah, you really aren't prepared. Well, is there anything else you want to say about that before we move on to the article and we can circle back? Well, I've got to just say now that my mom is, is dead, I'm just so glad that I did all that for mm-hmm. her. I feel mm-hmm. really good about having cared for her at home. And there were times when things were stressful with my siblings and all that has completely disappeared, I think, for all of us. I understand why they weren't able to participate. They have steady jobs in other states. They're tied to offices. So even though the care disproportionately did fall on me, it's okay. In some ways, I I do feel like the lucky one. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll stay in the house now for a while? And did you ever expect to be living in your childhood home now? No. I mean, (laughs) I was not that kind of person. (laughs) I'm, I'm not particularly housey, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. but um, yeah, we're here for a while. So, Well, let's move on to this great article, Inequality Has Gotten So Bad That We're Offshoring Our Grandparents, subtitled, Americans Can't Afford to Retire in the United States, So Many Are Moving South of the Border, Trading One Form of Inequity for Another. And for our listeners, the piece examines the growing number of Americans who are choosing to retire in Central American countries, or to leave the U.S., period, uh, but primarily focused in this article on Panama, because these countries are more affordable than retiring in the U.S., and then on the flip side of that, how the influx of Americans is transforming the host countries culturally and economically. You noted that Panama is the number one destination for, quote, offshoring seniors, a great phrase. And these are primarily, are these affluent Americans who are leaving or are they middle class? And how many American retirees are we talking about here? Those are great questions. They are not necessarily affluent Americans who are moving overseas. I would say many of them are working to middle class. A lot of them have some assets. A lot of them are You know, they worked as civil servants or teachers. Obviously, there are many who are affluent and many who are not. But most of the people I met who had moved overseas, they weren't poor, but they certainly weren't rich either. And they were sort of in that middle place where they were starting to find it more and more difficult to make it work in the United States. So they moved overseas, and Panama is a frequent destination. There are other countries like Costa Rica and Ecuador. They're calling Central America the new Sun Belt because so many Americans are moving overseas. Some observers suggest that perhaps 1.4 million American retirees now live overseas. Official reports suggest a, a smaller number, mm-hmm. but it's really kind of hard to uh, to know for sure. But there, you know, Americans are, re- are retiring all over the world. Um, in Malaysia, for instance, there there's a program for people who want to, you know, move to Malaysia. And they, if you have a certain amount of money to invest in the country, then you can do it. A lot of countries have have started these kinds of initiatives to attract retirees and their money. Mm-hmm. You profiled a 67-year-old Texan named Bob Lawrence who lives in a small town in Panama, and his reasons for moving there were quite interesting. Tell us a little bit about his background and what you remember. He retired, and he had a Social Security, and he just wasn't really able to kind of uh, make it work on his uh, Social Security check. And Remember, he said something like, if, if I were still living in Texas, I'd be standing on the floor of a Walmart all day trying to make enough money to mm-hmm. meet my car payments and, and my rent and everything. So he decided to make the trade for a life in Boquete. Okay. And he's, 
I think, emblematic of many of the Americans who move overseas and really make a success of it. He's a, an adventurous spirit. He's very open-minded. He decided it was really important for him to learn the language, uh, to study Spanish. And he said something to me like, you know, in Texas, I, I get a little annoyed when people immigrate to our country and, and don't learn English. But here I am emigrating to Panama, so I really need to learn the language because mm-hmm. that's, you know, something I think is really necessary if you're going to participate in the life of another country. So he did that. And I met retirees who seemed to have a less positive experience and Often they tended to be people who would move to another country and try to insulate themselves from the culture that they Mm. had emigrated to. So Mm -hmm. they wouldn't learn the language or interact with locals and would try to kind of just sort of keep their world, the world of expats, as they call them, Mm -hmm. although really they're immigrants. And uh, I found that for some of those folks who tried to lead an insular life, they would continue to be confused by their host country and sort of the traditions, the language, and the sort of the ways of, of the new, different ways of life. And some of them would eventually sort of react by becoming confused or angry or even resentful of their host country. And emigration is a choice. Right. <laughs> we don't need to do it. Right. So um, one of the takeaways that I got from some situations that did seem to work is that those who really make an effort to participate and give back to the lives of the, the new communities that they've entered have a much more positive experience. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting that you also included in this article a gal from Seattle, a businesswoman named Connie, who was stretched financially because she was spending money caring for her own parent. And you wrote that she, quote, slashed her burn rate by moving to Panama with her 90-year-old mother who's disabled and needs round-the-clock care. So I thought this was a really brave choice for this woman. It makes sense, but that's a lot to do to take your mom over to a foreign country to choose a whole different life, primarily because elder care in America is very labor-intensive, as you talked about before in your own experience, and labor is cheaper outside the U.S. Can you talk about her a little bit? Yeah, I met not just Connie, but several mm-hmm. other women mm-hmm. who had taken, uh, and one man who had taken their mothers to Panama because they felt that elder care in the U.S. was so expensive. Again, let's look at that 168-hour week. 24-hour care is really expensive if you're paying somebody 25 an hour, and you've got to do that over, say, actually three people because you've got three eight-hour shifts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that adds up to well well over $500 a day in care. So that, that can be extraordinarily expensive, and it's really out of reach for most Americans. And you know, my husband and I were able to sort of do a lot of that because we're relatively young. But mm-hmm. if you're talking about someone who's really like a baby boomer, who is, perhaps has some you know, impaired mobility themselves or is not able to sort of do that work or just it's just it puts it out of reach for most families. So I did meet a number of people who moved to Panama to help provide for a level of care for their elders that they couldn't in the United States. And uh, it is a bold move, but they all seemed to be able to make it work. Although I heard about other people who are not able to make it work. I think the people I met who were able to make it work managed to find caregivers who were really effective one of them had hired an American, so there wasn't an issue with, you know, preparing different types of food or mm-hmm. issues with communication. Mm-hmm. But 
another man told me that sometimes people try to move their elders down and they think that they can just hire somebody from a different culture to care for their elder. And if the elder can't communicate um, effectively or doesn't like the food that's prepared or can't say what they need, that that could be really challenging, really challenging. And then the issue, of course, of trying to obtain medical care for complex uh, health problems. That's an issue in the United States. Right. So that can be, you know, also uh, equally challenging. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to the possible issue for a baby boomer, someone who's older who might not have who might have their own mobility issues, then they're also dealing with spending their own savings to care for their parents yeah. in the U.S. And so that seemed like a conscious move on that gal's part, Connie. Yeah, I mean Connie also is like really devoted to her mom. She mm-hmm. is there in the house, so even though there is a caregiver there, it's not like Connie's just sort of outsourcing all of the work. Connie does a lot of it, but to have somebody else there is just really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the economic chaos that ensues for the native populations of these countries? I mean, you know, the local residents, their lives are changed as well. What sort of effects are there on the host country? In Panama, it's, it's really interesting because Panama has long had a relationship with the United States. They're Currency is very stable because it's tied to the dollar. Um, mm-hmm. Because of the canal, there have always been Americans in Panama. Um, there was a you know strong military presence there for many years. But the influx of American retirees in these numbers is new in Panama. There are just larger numbers of retirees who are moving, not just to Panama City, but to some parts of the countryside that typically didn't have a whole lot of American retirees in the past. And what I heard was that it is changing the real estate market. Mm-hmm. I spoke with one young mother in Panama City who said, you know, real estate has become out of reach for a lot of um, young families like ours. It used to be that we would be able to purchase something modest but nice that was sort of ours, and it's become much more difficult to do so. Mm-hmm. And the real estate values in the countryside are also changing as well. And it also appears that the influx may be elevating the cost of some basics, for instance, the cost of staples like rice or other you know, essential food ingredients. So that can be very challenging. Is there an upside for these local economies? I think there may be you know, more employment in certain ways. Certainly, uh, a lot of the people I met who were moving to Bukete were participating in different types of charitable initiatives that could benefit local schools or benefit locals in other ways and raises wages for some sectors. Several people told me that when they moved to Bukete, the typical cost for a housekeeper per day was about $7 for the day. And now it's twice as high, uh, actually more than twice as more than twice that, and sometimes, you know, triple. So, Wow, um, $7 for the day. Yes, yes. So for people performing that type of work, that's um, a large benefit. Yeah. Although then I did hear that some Panamanians are upset about that because it costs them more to pay their housekeepers. Mm -hmm. But but I think, Mm -hmm. you know, listing wages... It seems like a a boon to the people performing that type of work, for sure. Absolutely. When you were doing the research, did anything surprise you? One thing that did surprise me when I arrived in Panama, and this is sort of um, a little bit off topic, is that 
a lot of the people who had moved to Panama felt this sort of disaffection with the United States. I mean, not all of them by any means, but there were, it's so funny, there were people who were really far off to the right, and then there were people who were really far off to the left. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was kind of interesting. People often move to the U.S. as refugees of a, of a different kind or for mm-hmm. a better quality of life. But Americans are leaving the U.S. for some of the same reasons. And mm-hmm. I, I found that inter- a very interesting parallel. We hear about the cost of care. And as you were talking about the cost of hiring outside help, I was, mm-hmm. al- I was thinking, well, so what's the alternative? Putting a loved one in an assisted living home, which is also expensive, or a nursing home, which is expensive. And yet there's almost no discussion in the mainstream media about the staggering cost of care. I mean, we really I hear know. nothing and- about this. I know. And when you, when you tell people, when you really break it down for people, they are absolutely shocked. One of the comments on my uh, nation piece, a woman said, elder care in excess of $500 a day. I can't believe that. You know, and then she, maybe she referred to her mother. Well, her mother might not need help walking or going to the bathroom, or mm-hmm. her mother might not be bedridden or in a wheelchair. Her mother might not need help taking a fork and bringing it to her mouth. Her mother might be able to eat a full meal at a time. But if you're an elder who can only have a few bites at a time, you need certain types of food that are very soft. You need a very special diet prepared for you. You can't sit up by yourself, um, let alone shower or go to the bathroom. I mean, you do need 24-7 care. It's very labor-intensive, and it really is a 24-hour It really is 24-hour care. And the cost per hour is really all over the map. When I lived in D.C. and we hired outside help for my mom, and it was about $22 an hour in the Mm -hmm. D.C. area. And Mm -hmm. that was through an agency. And Mm -hmm. here in Florida, everything's cheaper. But in Florida... My mom now, very similar to yours, she's a fall risk. And so we have her in a, in a building that has an independent living wing, an assisted living wing, and a skilled nursing wing. And my mom needs to have more care than the assisted living facility, which in, that's the wing she's in, provides. And this is another misconception I think people have about ALFs is that it's 24-7 care, and it's not. Assisted you living, have to often hire a private person to and do that's what we've the, done. the things that your mom needs. Yeah, and that's what we've done. And I've found that the costs are really sort of all over the map. And certainly in those you know bigger cities, the rate through an mm-hmm. agency is higher, always going to be it, higher. For, for Yeah, here in Boston, the rates were between 23 and 29 an hour through an agency. And the and care workers not seeing very much money. That's a sad that. thing. The yeah. care workers are not, you know, I understand their background checks, there's insurance. I mean, we, right. you know, did private pay, which can be challenging because, you know, if the person hurts themselves or falls. My husband and I both threw out our backs several times in the course of caring for my mom because she needed help with everything, and even sitting her up um, is a strain, so you have to be really careful how you do the work. Did you know that people who do elder care have a higher rate of back injury than people who do something like contracting? I mean, it's like maybe it's nurses have a higher rate because it's a lot of the same work, changing people, setting them up, helping them get up and showering them. It's just an enormously high rate of injury. So, you know, we did take that risk. Fortunately, no one got hurt, which Mm -hmm. we just Mm -hmm. really, I think, got lucky there. But yeah, when you hire through an agency, they do take care of certain things. But the person who's doing the actual care typically doesn't get a whole lot of money per hour. In Florida, actually, the average wage of a care worker through an agency is about $10 an hour. Oh, 
Which unbelievable. Is, I mean, how are people supposed to support their own families on that? I mean, that's crazy. And, and so, these are not kids. These tend to be women who are a little older, maybe have children themselves. Right. Some of them are younger, but this is not high schoolers. This is not like, you know, working a, right. a, a little job to make extra pocket money. And this mm-hmm. is the new normal. And we're not really talking about this in mainstream media, or if we are, the writing around this is often fairly dispassionate, and there's really no sense of urgency. Um, And then there's a lot of, um, I also feel like there's a lot of sort of of hallmark language that perhaps I've participated in as well, saying, well, I'm really grateful, and I am really grateful that I did this. And I don't know, I just would ask myself, like, what is life about? I mean... Much of what life is about is caring for the people you love, and it was really important for us to do it, but I do feel like we would have all benefited as a family, my mother, my siblings, and myself, if in the very beginning we had all been exposed enough to sort of these issues to sit down together and say, okay, well, if Catherine is going to be doing this, we need to sort of find a way as a family to make this work right. and sort of seeing it as like a, a family project, acknowledging all of the realities of it rather than me sort of like, oh, I, the dike is broken. I better like go patch it up. <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> right. it was really, uh, my husband and I made that decision in sort of crisis mode. It just seemed like, oh gosh, we better step in and do this rather than, mm-hmm. well, okay, we're, we're taking on this responsibility and how is our family going to make that work? Right. Throughout the process, however, did you update your siblings a lot? Was there a lot of communication? There was a lot of communication, and it wasn't, to be honest, always very helpful. I think that um, my siblings did experience feelings of perhaps guilt that they weren't able to share the burden. But, you know, I tried to sort of enlist different siblings to do things that could be done from afar. Mm -hmm. But then Mm -hmm. I think they found it very difficult because they weren't here. So, for instance, putting an ad in, try to find a new caregiver or to try to do bill paying. They didn't want to get involved in paying bills. They didn't want to get involved in, you know, organizing things that could be done, you know, on the phone. I mean, even though I was here doing a lot of the work, I was also on the phone typically an hour, an hour and a half a day, doing something for my mother, whether it was like organizing medical care or, you know, physical therapy or anything. You know, there was always bill things that had to be sorted out or scheduling caregivers or dealing with insurance, dealing with this or that, Mm -hmm. some house things. And you just don't even know how much time it's going to take. I mean, it ends up being the sort of real primary job, right? a full-time job. And sometimes when you're in it, you feel like this is how my life is. It's never going to end. But, you know, unfortunately, look, I, I when I realized at a certain point that my mom was really going to die, it was really shocking. It was really kind of sad. Like I invested all of my time and energy trying to keep her alive. Mm-hmm. And I, start, I started to, when she stopped eating solid foods, I mean, she could eat puree. And then at a certain point, she stopped eating. And she couldn't. I mean, she had tumors everywhere. They were all throughout her, you know, lymph mm-hmm. system and in her throat. I mean, she just simply couldn't swallow. And I mm-hmm. just felt like a failure. I thought, I just felt like as her ability to swallow decreased, I felt, and it's irrational. I felt like, a, like I failed, like I spent all this time trying to keep them alive and, you know, feed your, your loved one. But then at a certain point, I just thought, okay, well, it's a terrible thing to say, but I thought she's going to pass. Mm-hmm. And we'll have done this great thing for her and my life will get easier. 
And that was a very powerful moment for me. Mm-hmm. Were your kids there in the room? When my mom died, yeah. no. They stopped wanting to see her about maybe a week and a half before she actually passed. Mm-hmm. And I just decided to let them do that because they had to feel comfortable in the house too. Yeah, sure. Um, but they were very much a part of her life and they really participated in her care. They were really hands-on. What a great exposure for them, though. It right? was. It was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> it was <For> wonderful. <laughs> yeah. They bring her food and help her eat and help her pick out things she wanted to do in the day and come and talk about their school. They, they were a wonderful part of her care. When I moved in with my mother to take care of her, I had so many friends who said, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't understand what you're doing. Maybe it's because my mom was a little older than many of my friends' parents. I think it's also because I had seen my father die and experienced what that was like. But I, I, feel, I felt like a lot of people didn't understand why I was doing what I was doing. And as now, you know, the years pass and people's elders get a little older, maybe they understand a little bit better. But I would like to be able to encourage people to do caregiving for their elders. I think it's actually can be an incredibly rewarding experience. But I do think that it has to be in the context of honest family conversations about what's required. Mm -hmm. And if families could do things to try to make it more equitable or fair for the person who's doing the caregiving, I think that would be a real positive I think that even if I hadn't been here doing the actual care for my mother, it would have still taken so much of my mental energy just to sort of manage the whole thing. It was almost like it's almost like easier to do it yourself than right. to right. try and manage other people doing it. So right. even if I wasn't in the house with her, it just still would have been enormously hard. So why not have her be at home and why not try and make it work here, you know? Right. She's got to be somewhere or else she's going to be out <laughs> on the street, right? And then you get a lot of siblings who are not involved in the care or who say, oh, my sibling is taking advantage of my mother because she's living rent-free. Right. Like if, if your job is a 24-hour job and you're living on site, that's not, that's not exactly <laughs> rent-free living. It, no, you're your life is not your own. Here, so. I mean, your life is hijacked. I don't think going into it, I had any idea how much of an emotional toll it would take on me, how much of a physical toll. And I'm, I'm a pretty fit middle-aged gal, and I have a lot of energy. But thank God, because, mm-hmm. and, and I don't have kids, so you know that helped as well. But then my life really was not my own, and I didn't realize how my life would be hijacked. I think that it's interesting, I think, in, in my situation, because I had my husband and kids in the house, I was able to kind of, um, I mean, I, I read your wonderful book, and one thing that you know, your father had died and your mom was really, you know, there was a really loving long-term marriage and a terrible loss for her. And I think to go through that, she was really sort of brought her down a bit. And my mom, it was a different situation because my mom had been living on her own for many years. She kind of accepted that my father was gone. And even though she, you know, missed him, was sort of okay on her own. So there wasn't the same kind of emotional burden in a way. Um, And also having my husband and kids there, I was always cognizant that even though my mom is declining and in a way I'm watching a little bit of her slip away every day, I need to make the house happy for the children. Mm -hmm. So I always, whatever holiday it was, I'd, you know, gussy it up and I Mm -hmm. kind of try and sort of keep a happy energy going, even though, oh gosh, you know, I mean, watching my mom lose some of her mental uh, abilities, some of her mental acuity was very difficult. Yeah, And I remember being kind of shocked when, when I noticed that that was really happening. 
And that, if it had just been myself and my mom, I think I would have carried that. That would have been a much heavier weight. But because, you know, I'd sort of deal with her. Oh, my God, Mom says this wacky thing. Now i got to go help the kids <laughs> right. do fun things. Like, let's right. go play soccer, you know? And it sort right. Of me right out of it. It's, yeah. it's so different for different people. But um, yeah. this is going to be an issue of our generation. This is what's coming. You know, we're going to have larger numbers of people living longer with complex medical conditions. And how are they going to be cared for? And I think until we start having that honest conversation in the media and the public square about the realities of elder care, things are still going to be handled poorly within families because it will continue to be easy for some members of families to deny that caregiving involves real human capital. Right. You know, the baby boomers, as they age, they're going to need a lot of care. And the next generation behind them really haven't amassed the kind of wealth that's necessary in order for them to be able to transfer some right. portion of that right. wealth and human capital up to their elders, right. which is what's required. And for people who are living paycheck to paycheck or don't have that sort of stability in their lives, it's a huge deal. And I met many people who do caregiving for their elders and feel like it's really going to affect their own ability to retire, that it's eating up their savings and their time, you know, that they could be earning more money or earning money that they might need to devote to their children. Right. So it's, 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 a real, it's a real challenge. So we need to sort of, as a society, kind of figure out how we're going to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And I think we can only do that if we have these conversations. Amen. Journalist and author Catherine Stewart, her piece for The Nation is called Inequality Has Gotten So Bad That We're Offshoring Our Grandparents. We'll have a link to the article on our website as well as to Catherine's recent piece for The Advocate called What Happens When LGBT People Are Priced Out of the Neighborhood. Catherine, thanks so much for being on the show and keep up the great writing. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, head on over to the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. And subscribe to the podcast. We've got lots of great interviews and links to information you can use. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, Jana Panaritis. So if you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to Jana at AgeWise.com. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.